Yeah, like, if you guys haven't been part of the worship circle yet, we've done two so far, and we just put our chairs in a circle, and there's, like, no agenda, and we just worship. And uh, if, you have a, if you have a word to bring, if you have a song to bring, a dance, um, a poem, we've had it all. Almost all. But haven't seen everything, I guess. But uh, feel free to come, or just come and just take part, sing, and, and enjoy so we are uh, beginning today a new um, series in the book of Hebrews. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews is a ancient, ancient letter written by probably a Hebrew to who? Any thoughts? The Hebrews. <laughs> I know it was a trick question. Um, we're going to get really deep here. So get ready. So Hebrews was written to the Hebrews, most likely by a Hebrew. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Maybe Luke, maybe Apollos, maybe Barnabas, uh, maybe possibly Paul. Probably not Paul, but possibly Paul. Uh, ladies, could have been Priscilla. We don't know. It's, it's a book that is going to challenge us over the next however many weeks we're in it, in a lot of ways. Uh, and also, as we dive into it, we're also going to have to begin to think like Hebrews to some degree, like Jewish people to some degree, like ancient Jewish people. Uh, there's a lot of differences between the way Greeks think, which is primarily how we think, and then the way Hebrews think. And I'm not going to get into all those differences right now over the series. As we dive into Hebrews, we're going to talk a lot about the differences in how Greeks think and how Hebrews thinks, and it's going to help us understand what's happening here in this letter and actually in the Bible as a whole to a greater degree. For example, uh, Greeks are very concrete, whereas Hebrews are a little more abstract. Greeks are more like scientists. Hebrews are more like poets, you could say. Um, when it comes to God, a, a, a Greek wants to know God and, and sort of study God, whereas a Hebrew wants to have a relationship with God. And so it's just a whole different kind of approach to, to uh, spirituality, to God. And so it's going to be interesting as we dive, in, dive into it. Uh, so with no further ado, shall we begin? Hebrews chapter 1. Before we read, um, let's pray. God, thank you for uh, a new year. Thank you for this community that you are uh, slowly putting together in front of our eyes. And we just praise you for everything that you are and the way that you move in our lives. And we ask that as we look into these ancient words that you reveal to us the truth uh, that you would have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. In the past... God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. In the past, he spoke to the prophets, the Jewish, the forefathers of the nation of Israel, his servants, these, these few people who God actually allowed, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm like trying to get over this cold here. God allowed access into his like thinking. 
he allowed these, these servants of his, these prophets, the, these forefathers of the nation of Israel, access into his redemptive plan, where God, throughout the years, throughout history, in various ways, to, various, to, to different people, in all different ways, began disclosing some information, which w- was precisely his redemptive plan. I think of Exodus 19, where Moses comes before God and there's like this thunder and this earthquake and lightning and this huge cloud of smoke billows up. And in this, in this moment, as, as the mountains are literally shaking, Moses dares to speak and he says a word. And at that, God's thunderous voice just pounds down, you know, like the voice that would wake you up in the morning. Uh, the voice that would shock you and, and just wreak havoc in your soul, like God's thunderous voice just pounds down and speaks through this thunder and through the earthquake in this powerful way, and God begins to speak to humanity. I think of First Kings 19, where for Elijah, God didn't speak through an earthquake. It, the earthquake came, and the, the thunder came, and the storm came, but God wasn't in any of that. But this time, God spoke after all of that left, and it was quiet. It was still. You know that, you know that moment after the storm's gone, after the snow's like completely covering us, or the rain finally stops, and it's just kind of quiet outside? Maybe not here in Baltimore, but if you were elsewhere, it's quiet. And in that quiet, in that, the stillness of the moment, God speaks to Elijah in a still, small voice, the voice that you might use when speaking to a sleepy child or on a quiet evening. God speaks to humanity. Or I think of Isaiah 8.6. For those who didn't heed the gentle rivers of, of, of Shiloh, God spoke through the flooding of the Euphrates. This is exactly how it Hebrews starts with this image, and for the Hebrew people, for the Jewish people, he's drawing to mind all of these different ways throughout history, throughout biblical history, throughout their history, that God has spoken to humanity, to these prophets, to to the forefathers, to his people, his servants, allowing them access into his mind. F.F. Bruce says... The word was not completely uttered until Christ came. The word spoken him was indeed God's final word. Look at verse verse 2. But in these last days, he says, in these last days, he, God, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. I was speaking with a friend the other day, and we were just having like this really random conversation. Just we were hanging out, drinking coffee, nonetheless. You guys know I love coffee, and uh, so I had a nice French press uh, pot sitting there, and we were enjoying a cup of coffee and and uh, just chatting. And then out of the blue, he says, "You know why I have a problem with God, with belief in God?" And I'm like, "All right." And, and so he was like, "He said, where are the burning bushes today?" You know, all throughout the Bible, we see these really crazy ways that God is speaking to humanity through burning bushes, through thunder, through lightning, through rain, through smoke, 
through still small voices, through the flooding of the Euphrates. You know, where is the flooding of the inner harbor? You know, where is God's voice thundering down upon us and it's like shaking our soul? Where is the still small voice in that quiet moment? Like, where are these crazy wild ways that God spoke? It's God spoke to humanity. Where are the burning bushes? The uh, ancient idea of logos, word, if you would, word, word, logos, same thing, logos, word. The ancient idea of logos was this idea of God revealing himself to humanity. And so he would use logos to reveal himself to humanity. For the ancient people, when they thought of logos, they thought of that which everything came through and that which holds everything together. What we might say, that which makes the world go round. Logos. This almost this, this being beyond our comprehension. But God then through Logos, through word, has been slowly revealing himself to humanity. And here's the thing. If you guys... If you guys look at a painting, how can the how can the painting know its painter? It's impossible, right? How can characters in a novel know their author? They they can't. Characters in a novel cannot know their author. It's beyond their comprehension. Because he has created them, he's he's written them into the book. How can the creation know its creator? It can't. This is where I respect my agnostic friends who say God is far beyond our comprehension. Like we, we, we can try reason, we can try science, we can try religion, but the reality is, is God is far beyond our comprehension. And so human beings in and of ourselves cannot know God. Unless God were to reveal himself to us. Unless God chose to reveal himself in some ways, in certain ways, to humanity. Unless the painter were to paint himself into the painting. Unless the story writer were to, were to write himself into the story. Unless God were to communicate to humanity through his logos. And so I was telling my friend, like, at the at the very core of our faith is this idea that, that we cannot know God. So therefore, God has spoke in various ways to various people throughout history. And then what Hebrews is telling us here, what this, where we're starting out with this letter, is that God has spoken one last word. Like you thought the burning bush was pretty crazy? You thought a thunder and lightning was pretty crazy? You thought the flooding of Euphrates was crazy? You thought a still small voice was pretty crazy? God spoke one last time, a final word, in the craziest of ways. Through the painter painting himself into the painting, the, the, the author writing himself into the novel. God becoming flesh. And so in these last days, the writer of Hebrews is saying, God has finally spoken to us. Like all of the other words were incomplete. <clears throat> the sentence was not finished. The book had not yet been completed and published. 
All of it was looking forward. What was, what was all scripture looking forward to? It was all pointing to something. And finally, that something, that logos, became flesh. The word actually came into the world and became flesh and dwelt among us. And it was the most radical, fullest expression of God in Jesus Christ. Uh, so then, so I was t- telling my friend this, you know, and we're chatting this about this. And so, so I was like, you know, so there is no need then for burning bushes anymore because we have Christ. Like, it's, com- it's come. The burning bush, you know, whatever it was that caused the burning bush, the burning bush came into the world. <clears throat> and so we have it. And so then uh, we began talking about, uh, it's, it's a conversation we fairly regularly have, which is, so then why is Jesus such a big deal? Like, seriously, like why, why is Jesus such a big deal? Like, why do we sing love songs to Jesus? Like, we just sang this song today. Where is it? What happened to my... We just sang this song today. Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I adore you. Jesus, you still have my affection. And my song will be, I love you. Isn't that weird? <laughs> Isn't it? Like, unless Jesus is really, really something... Unless he's really important. Jesus, I love you. Like, we're not singing Gandhi, I love you. You know? We're not singing whatever. I'm not going to start naming names because then it's going to get controversial. We don't, we don't sing about, I mean, maybe your spouse, but outside of your spouse, like, what dude outside of his spouse is going to be singing, Jesus, I love you? You know? It's just kind of strange. Unless there's like something about Jesus. So my friend is like, why does everything always have to be about Jesus? You know, like somebody, somebody, somebody's having a problem. Oh, you just need Jesus. Why? <laughs> What's, what does Jesus have to say? Why is Jesus so freaking important? What, what we're going to find in Hebrews throughout this entire letter of Hebrews is really a profile of Jesus. The whole thing is, is answering that question. Why is Jesus so important? What is the big deal? Why do we sing love songs to Jesus? Look at the next verse, verse 3. The Son, he says. So Jesus, the Son, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful logos, by his powerful word. That word right there, exact representation, is the Greek word? Let me let's see if you guys can figure out what word we get from this. All right, it's the Greek word character. What word do you think we get from that? Charity. Charity? Close. Character. <laughs> character. Oh, <laughs> I just had to like, you know, the accent was a little too strong. <laughs> <clears throat> Excuse me. Jesus was the exact representation of God. It's the, it's the Greek word character that's used right there. When we think of the word character, what, what comes to your mind? Just right off the top of your head. Thoughts. Shout it out. What comes to your mind when you hear the word character? Personality. Personality. That's like two points right there for you guys. <laughs> what else? Huh? Values. Values. Yeah, like what kind of character you have. What else? Integrity. Good character. Yeah. What is it? Loyalty. Yeah. 
What else? What was that? Quality of your being. Quality of your being. I like that. Quality of your being. In the ancient world, for this word character, at the very bottom of it was this concept of, uh, of printing or embedding or stamping. Specifically, when they... When they thought of the word character, the way that they would have used that uh, most of the time was in relation to coins, that they would stamp coins. And it was the process of stamping a coin. An ancient coin, if you've seen them, um, looks a little different than our coins today. They were basically these uh, soft lumps of metal that they would just press something hard into and stamp something into it. That process was character. And the tool that they actually used was known as a character to stamp the coin. Now, if you've ever seen an ancient coin from the first century, what you'll see in in many of them is the head of Caesar. And it'll say Caesar on one side and it'll say DV on the other side. You know what DV means? D-I-V-I? Guess. God, yeah, divine, deity. Yeah, Caesar is divine. Or Caesar is the son of God. This concept that Caesar, on the coin here, Caesar is God, is divine, the son of God, he's birthed from God, was a was a extremely well-known, popular concept, which Caesar himself promoted. That he is indeed divine. Son of God. And when you would see his image, you would be looking at what? The image of God. Stamped onto a coin. What the author of Hebrews is saying here, as he's conjuring up for the, for the ancient people, this image, <clears throat> most likely, this is, this is what I believe, most likely he's conjuring up the image of, the, of a coin very likely a coin which says Caesar is God on it. He's saying really two things, I I believe. One, that there is another and better emperor in Jesus Christ. That Christ is the true emperor. Christ is the son, not Caesar. And also he's saying this, is that Christ you're looking at him, is the exact representation of God. When you take, uh, N.T. Wright puts it like this, the Father's nature and glory is exactly reproduced in the soft metal of Jesus' human nature. This image of like this, the, the soft metal being Jesus' human nature and the, taking the character and stamping this coin what you find is the exact image on the coin now that you have on here. And so this is the image that, that he's using, is that Jesus is he's not just kind of like God. I mean, he, we can look at human fathers and sons, and we could say, is there any fathers and sons in here? I don't think so. Um, yes. But he's, Paul's not in here. If you look at little Paul, he actually looks like Paul, doesn't he? 
He really does. I've never even thought about that until just now. He looks like a mini, mini you. <laughs> do you ever call him mini me? Yeah. Do you really? Do you, do you think he looks like you? Uh, uh, yeah. I think he does look like um, <clears throat> Yeah. And so there's that picture of a father and son, but then it's what the author of Hebrews is saying is that it's even more than that. It's as if somehow the father literally like became one with the son. And when you're looking at the son, you're looking at the father. Like this stamping process. You're looking at this and it is not just similar, but it's exactly what's on the other end. So when we're looking at the face of Jesus, when we're looking at the person of Jesus in here, what we're looking at then is God. Is that not phenomenal? Jesus is the very image of God. Jesus is the very image of God. Now, when we think of this phrase, image of God, where do our minds typically go? Any thoughts? Image of God. What pops into your mind? Okay. We're made in the image of God. That's exactly what I was... Let's let's go to Genesis chapter 1. All right? Let's go to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26, then God said, it says in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So humanity is made in the image of God. All right. Keep that in mind. Turn over to Genesis chapter three. Look at verse five. For God, uh, this is where Satan is tempting Adam and Eve to, to eat of the fruit. The serpents come and he's tempting them to eat of the fruit. He says this, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And they're like, oh, we can be like God. And so they eat the fruit. What is odd about that? What is the irony here? They already were. They already were. They already had the image of God upon them. But they didn't believe it. And so when the serpent comes and tempts them, you can be like God. They fall for that lie and they, on their own, try to achieve the image of God. What they're doing is they're walking away from the way God has created them to be, to fully reflect his image. And they're trying to attain that on their own, with their own power, with their own work, with their own desire, with their own energy, with their own willpower. They're they're trying to attain the image of God. And what happens is the mirror breaks. And they no longer fully reflect the image of God. Still created in the image of God, but something is now a little off. And they are no longer reflecting God's image to the world. What I believe the the writer of 
of Hebrews is saying is this. And tell me if I tell me if you think I'm off. Humans are broken images. We're, we're like broken mirrors that we kind of reflect God's image, but not fully. Not fully. We're cracked mirrors, no longer fully displaying God's glory. And Christ came as the exact representation of God. His fullest revelation, complete image, the perfect mirror, and is now restoring humanity once again as image bearers to display to the world God's radiance and his glory. And humanity is being restored as image bearers. Humanity is being restored as image bearers. We are being restored as image bearers of God. Let's think about that for a little bit. Uh, two, two and a half years ago, Jess and I moved from the barn down by the river where we lived. We lived there for five years, literally in a barn down by the river in Greensboro. It's a quiet little small town. And, uh, and we really felt called to move to Baltimore and begin a church. And so with a couple friends, uh, we moved into the city here and began meeting people and just seeing where God was working and seeing how we can serve and be part of God's mission, his kingdom here in Baltimore. We wanted to start a church which would do away with all pretense and simply be on mission, whose mission would be completely otherly. It wouldn't be uh, a, a church which exists for itself to build itself up or to celebrate itself. It would be a church which exists completely for the city, but not for the glory of the city, but for the glory of God in the city, for God's kingdom. A church which would use as much of its resources and talents for the building of God's kingdom in Baltimore, to see Baltimore reconciled with the kingdom of God. A church which would exist not for institutional purposes, but a church which would be first and foremost a community. But recognizing that community itself as a goal is a little lame and fairly secular, we thought, what if we, what if we were a community on mission? And the mission is to display God's image in Baltimore and in the world around us. We would uh, put on display God's, God's image through the proclamation, the verbal proclamation of the gospel, through actually telling people like about Jesus and the good news that there is forgiveness to be had, that God wants to forgive you and that Jesus has come and he has died for you in his vicarious and substitutional atonement and the gospel. But then at the same time, we wouldn't just leave it with words, but we would share the gospel through deeds, through intense social involvement. And we wouldn't necessarily just do outreach as everything we would be would be on mission. We would, quote unquote, plant ourselves in smack dab in the middle of like two really different neighborhoods. On one hand is a, a fairly nice neighborhood with uh, professionals living there and students and resources like oozing out of their pores. And then on the other side would be uh, a neighborhood with a lot of poverty and brokenness and drug addiction and urban decay. And we thought, what would it look like 
to really like plant ourselves in between these two neighborhoods and to celebrate the kingdom of God right there in that tension. And so here we are today, the new year. You guys are part of this story, like dreaming what might it look like, what might it look like to really fully reflect God's image here in Baltimore. And I, and I really think that as we, as we look back on our history, years down the road, we're here for the long haul. So I'm sure you guys are all going to be with us in 30 years from now, right? You're not, nobody's going anywhere. I don't know if I've told you that. <laughs> I'm telling you now. <laughs> like it's your stuff. I know you're not going anywhere. Doesn't Douglas just look fresh today? <laughs> Dave Chappelle. We're here for the long haul. And I think as we look back <clears throat> on our time here, I think, I really believe that we're going to see 2011, the year 2011, as a pivotal year for us as a community. A year ago, we were uh, sitting in my apartment after a Sunday gathering. We had uh, some of the people that we relied on the most had to leave, move out of the city for one reason or another. And so the handful of us that there were were sitting in our, my apartment like staring at each other, wondering if this thing's going to really go on. But we didn't voice that. And we began to rely on each other, uh, rely on each other and lean into each other in a fresh way. And something I believe was beautiful began to be born. And so now, like a year later, I b really believe that we're starting out 2011. We're starting this year with a stronger sense of community than we've ever had, a stronger sense of family. I mean, like, we are a family. You guys realize that? Like I've, <laughs> come on. We're a family. Like I've never seen a, a, a church just come together as one like I'm seeing here. I, I think we have a stronger sense of uh, mission and <clears throat> greater community impact, greater impact in the city than we've ever had. I think we're seeing more people grapple with the gospel and come to faith and actually and, and people that maybe have been stagnant in their faith are being stirred up and they're they're growing closer to Christ like never before. And over this year as we continue to plant seeds, you know, for this beautiful garden to to just break through the pavement of Baltimore City, I truly believe that it's going to be a, a, a year, it's going to be a very good year, and we have a lot to look forward to as we continue to partner with like-minded organizations to care for the homeless, to fight human trafficking, to aid the poor. As we, this spring, possibly we're talking about putting on this like massive free flea market. You guys want to do that? It'll be awesome. Something that I mean, as we continue to do these events, which unite communities and, and explore what it looks like for us to celebrate the kingdom of God and to display the image of God right here in this neighborhood and in this city. As, as we, uh, this Good Friday, we're talking about putting on a uh, beautiful Stations of the Cross art show throughout the neighborhood with 15 original works of art, which is going to connect with the neighborhood and the artistic people around us and reach out to them in a, in a fresh way and display God's, God's, uh, God's image. 
Um, I was at the Bolton Hill Neighborhood Association meeting this last week, which, by the way, those of you who live in Bolton Hill, need to be, you need to go to that. I'm looking over here. <laughs> I, was at the, I, was, I was asked to come and speak there and share a little bit about the garden and uh, what we're doing this summer. And uh, so I shared what we did last summer uh, with cleaning the alleys in West Baltimore. And, and I talked about how uh, this summer with Love Baltimore, we'll have, it's when volunteers, you know, tons of volunteers just descend upon our neighborhood to love, to join us in loving Baltimore. And as you guys uh, take a day off of work or extend yourself during these, this two-week period to love Baltimore. And so I offered our services. I hope you don't mind. I offered our services for a day to Bolton Hill. And I said, look. What if, I, what if we sent 30 to 50 volunteers into Bolton Hill for one day? Could you use us? And they were just like, what? Like, nobody, nobody asks that. You know, nobody does that. Like, there's people that are skeptical of us because they're like, nobody does that kind of stuff. Like, you guys have to have some kind of ulterior motive, you know? Like, who does this? Please. But it was great, like, great interaction. And I'm looking forward to this summer as we bring in volunteers and as you guys take some time to volunteer alongside in the neighborhood, and we, we work with Druid Heights, we work with Bolton Hill, and we just, we just, like, love Baltimore. It's awesome, isn't it? This year, one, with our house communities, something that John and I have been talking about, and we're going to begin exploring this, is what would it look like for our house communities to not simply have community as a goal? Because a lot of times, when we have community as, a, as, as the only goal, you don't get community. You just get, like, disgruntled people like, this, this sucks. <laughs> but what if mission was the goal? Like, what if, what if spiritual community really only comes out of mission when we're on mission together? So what would it look like then? We're going to be exploring this in house communities this year. What would it look like for each house community to decide, like, this is going to be our mission? And to really, as a house community, begin pouring themselves into something could be anything but just as as a house community like what if mission became our goal and we allowed community to to form around god's mission as we uh continue to develop our worship gatherings and just provide this space for people to come and 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 explore their faith and explore the scriptures and in in a safe unthreatening environment just allow people to ask questions and to doubt. And it's okay, you know, and, and to have a community come around people who are journeying and to come around each other and lift each other up when we're hurting and when we're falling, when we're crying, and, and laugh and rejoice with each other when things are really good. As, as we uh, see people walk away from their own desires, their own will, if you would, <clears throat> and they truly embrace God's will for their life. What's that going to look like this year? <clears throat> As people leave their comfort zones, individuals and families just say, you know what, I'm tired of always trying to be comfortable, and I'm going to leave my comfort zone, and I'm going to do something this year that's not comfortable. And as we, as we embrace Christ in a whole new way, I truly believe that there are countless stories that are yet to be had here in Baltimore in, in 2011. 
I truly believe it's going to be a good year, a pivotal year for us. But here's, here's the problem. If we're really honest about this, okay? When we talk about reflecting God's image, I mean, this is a really big concept that we're going to really dive into over the next couple of weeks. But when we talk about reflecting God's image in Baltimore, for some of you, this isn't good news because you're tired. And you're like, man, like, work is killing me. You know, like, I just, I don't feel like reflecting God's image. Like, I am just like, I'm done, you know. Like, I've known people who have left churches because they're burnt out. You ever known anyone? And maybe you've left a church in the past because you were burnt out. Like, I don't have the energy to reflect God's image anymore. Like, I am just done. And now here you are talking about reflecting God's image. It's not good news. Just making me feel guilty. I was in Starbucks the other day writing writing this uh, sermon. Douglas. <laughs> Um, my man right there. I was in a Starbucks the other day, and uh, I was I was writing the sermon and like sitting on my computer, you know, and drinking the Starbucks coffee. You know, if you're like a Starbucks hater, I'm sorry. Like <laughs> my friends who are like serious coffee connoisseurs, you know, Starbucks Starbucks is the evil empire, which it is. I know, I agree, but my wife works there, so I try to support it. No, man, just a little cream. I'm good. Just a little cream. And so I'm in Starbucks drink, drinking my little Starbucks coffee. And uh, uh, I, I get up to go to the bathroom. And <laughs> so I'm walking to the bathroom. And it's a single occupancy bathroom. All right? You, you guys know what single occupancy means? Like there's one person in there at a time. And you, like, lock the door when you go in, typically. <laughs> Oh, the door wasn't locked. <laughs> so I walk in, and there's a homeless woman in the bathroom. And she's like, Whoa! And so I kind of step back. And she was just, like, chilling. Just I, I, probably just looking for some warmth, which is totally cool. So I decide to hold it. And I go back, and I continue working on my sermon. Which, like, right then, she comes out of the bathroom. I'm like, come on. Like, I could have gone, you know, like. She comes out of the bathroom and she comes and sits beside me and looks at me and says, uh, can you pray for me? And I'm like, huh, you know? And so I stop my sermon and I turn and, uh, and I ask her what she wants me to pray for. And she doesn't have a place and her daughter doesn't have a place and some different things. And so I prayed for her. And, uh, and so she's sitting there. And so I go back to uh, writing the sermon. And like literally I'm, I'm writing, like, this part in the sermon, okay? Like, I'm not actually talking about her yet because it hasn't fully happened. Um, but I'm right here, like, towards the end. I'm trying to wrap it up because I'm hungry. I want to get home, but I don't want to go home without it being done because I know how the rest of the day goes, and I won't get back to it. And then I end up coming here, and I'm fumbling through the end of it because I never finished the sermon. And uh, so I'm sitting here trying to finish it, and she says, interrupts me again. And she says, can you uh, help me get on the subway? Because I'm trying to get to a shelter in Owings Mills. And uh, I didn't have any change. And so I told her, I don't, don't have any change. I'm sorry. She said, okay. So then I go back to writing the sermon. And I'm writing like, we need to love people like Jesus would love them. <laughs> <laughs> we need to love people like Jesus would love them. 
They're like, ah, I can't even write this, you know? And I see, I could have closed the computer and walked with her. Like I was at Preston and Charles Street. Could have walked all the way over to the, the State Center subway stop. And I um, just wasn't really feeling it. And as I'm sitting here, all of a sudden, I don't know, maybe it's because I was actually writing it at the time. I don't know, maybe. But this idea of the image of God, like being a mirror reflecting God, uh, was just began to like hit me. Like, am I really reflecting God here? And then, like, honestly, where my mind turned was the grace of Christ. The grace, which is, by the way, saved me, washed over me. And this Christ who has literally just come to dwell, like covering me. And in that moment, it was like there was no grudge about it. I was just like so filled with joy. And I was like, man, like I really want to reflect Christ in this moment. And so I packed up, and, you know, it's not even that big of a deal. I never finished the sermon, so we're done. (laughs) (laughs) But look at, look at, go back to Hebrews chapter 1. Look at verse, the the rest of verse 3. Did I say thanks for this, by the way? I don't know if I told you thanks. It's awesome. Verse 3, the second half. After he had provided purification... For sins. So here's Jesus. He's finally come as the last word that God's spoken, this magnificent message in Christ. Uh, he has come as the fullest representation, the complete mirror, ref- fully reflecting God. Then it says, after he has, had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. You see, Christ not only came as the complete, full representation of God, the complete image bearer of God, but he also provided purification for our sins. Those cracks in our mirror where we have sinned, where we have shattered the mirror and things are just off and cockeyed and the image isn't looking quite right anymore. That's sin. And he has come and he has provided the purification for that. And he has pieced our mirror back together through placing himself on top of us. Through us essentially embracing his mirror, his reflection. This is grace. It's not us. You see, what was it that caused Adam and Eve to fall? It was them trying on their own to be like God. So why do we think then... That through our own energy, through our own effort, that we can reflect God's image to the world. We can't. And if you're feeling burned out by it, of course you are, because we can't. Like, we really can't reflect God's image on our own. It's only when we fully realize and understand and believe grace, and we allow that grace to cover us, and, and it's no longer us, but it's Christ reflecting now through us, We take on his mantle of perfect image bearer. When we we recognize that grace and we embrace that grace, it's only then that we can fully begin to reflect God's image to the world and be like 
God, be like Christ to the world around us. And I would submit this. When we do fully understand grace, and when we allow grace to come and purify us and cleanse us and fix the cracks in our mirror, and, and we, we take that mantle of Christ's mirror upon us, when we fully understand grace, I, I believe that it is only natural then for us to reflect God's image to the world. Reflecting his image to the world, whether it's through helping somebody get on a subway or whether it's through being an encourager or an ear or sharing the gospel with somebody or going out of your way or having somebody into your home that you would normally never have into your home or all of that just becomes natural and it's like that's who we are. It would be less joyful for us to do anything else. Are you... Are you tired of trying to reflect God's image on your own? You're tired of, of the work, the energy that it takes to, be, try to, to try to be like Jesus. And you need to accept grace and you need to allow Christ to begin doing the work in you. And, and that begins with him changing your heart. Have you been doubting your entire life, maybe, your own self-worth, your very worth? And you need to stop trying to find your worth. And you need to believe that you are indeed made in the image of God. Therefore, you are very valuable. And God wants to reflect his image off of you. Hebrews begins, the, the writer of Hebrews begins writing this letter with his eyes firmly fixed on Jesus. Like everything in the letter is about Jesus. Everything. And I believe that as we go through the next weeks, as we study Hebrews, if you guys are, if you continue the journey with us, you too will be challenged at least to have your eyes fixed on Christ. And while that might seem warm and fuzzy at some points, it, it requires a complete transformation of all that you are. Everything that you are is fixed on Christ. Every decision you make, every place you go, every thought that you have, everything is, is fixed on Christ. Are you ready for the challenge? I ask you guys, it's the beginning of 2011, it's January 9th, right? Would you join me this year in continuing to explore this concept of reflecting the image of God to the world around us? as we embrace the grace of Jesus Christ and as we allow him to love the world through us. Let's pray. God, we do believe that you are indeed good and beautiful and everything we see in Christ is a representation of who you are. 
we ask that you change our hearts, teach us grace, and allow us to fully reflect your image to the world, the community, the city around us, and to each other, so that you may be glorified. In Jesus' name.